Hello, welcome back to Projections Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Hi. We've got a very special guest today, Adam Chamberlain. Hi, Adam. Hello. Uh, Adam and I met when I was teaching a course on mental illness in cinema, and uh, it turned out that Adam has a very keen interest on representations of mental illness in, in the media, and he writes a very interesting blog called Frame of Mind. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Sure, yeah, and first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. um, Yes, so I started this uh, blog out of a... I had an interest in psychology. I studied psychology. I had an interest in criminal psychology, actually, originally. Um, But then became interested in mental illness and had had some sort of exposure to to people I know with with mental illnesses and so on. And I write a little. I'm not a professional writer, but I write a little in in my spare time. And had one or two ideas um, that were uh, that involved um, characters with, with mental illness in them. And I thought, okay, well, how do, how do I get this right and how has it been done? So it was kind of my way of going out there and investigating how it had been done well, how it hadn't mm. been done well, and educating myself about how uh, mental illness has been portrayed, and, and specifically on TV is sure. my interest. Ah, okay. And how do we find you? Do you have, like, um, what's your online presence? You can plug yourself. Plug your, yeah, plug your, yeah, plug your, yes. your, your blog. So the blog uh, is at uh, Fantastic. Uh, that's probably the best way to find me. And there are links there to, to my other presences online. Yeah, I highly, highly recommend your blog. Uh, it's so thoughtful and it's, it just is very um, multidimensional. You go into, it's, it's, you, you look at a lot of different factors. Mm-hmm. It's very, very thoughtful and interesting. Just a great read. Okay, thank you. Um, so, yeah, and I thought it would be really interesting to invite you on mm-hmm. and start to look a little bit at the three of us who can discuss mental illness represented in television because I feel like television is having a bit of a kind of golden age right now. It's mm-hmm. There's so many interesting things on, and there's so many different platforms to watch TV, uh, particularly like Netflix, Prime, the BBC have great shows. And firstly, I want to kind of hear a little bit about how we, are, what we feel about TV. Like, what is our, how, how do we consume it? Um, yeah, I suppose our feelings about it, what we like to watch. Start with you, Sarah. Okay. Yeah. So I have a love-hate relationship with TV. Mm. Um, I, I was actually listening, I'm going to plug someone else's podcast right now, um, Chick Flicks, which is like a new horror fo- uh, podcast with, with two girls that watch horror films, oh, yeah. and uh, one of them made a crack about, um, bo- about you know, long, you know, full series on Netflix, yeah. uh, with the Marie Kondo reference, it does its bark joy, <laughs> and that's how I kind of feel about box sets in general, mm-hmm. is that, that I feel that if they're sort of... the I would have more joy if I sat down and watched something off my film watch list, something difficult and not something that I don't feel like watching. (laughs) I feel like I would get more satisfaction if I did that. And the box sets are kind of like the easy, the sort of the easy, the junk food. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, you know, television's like an incredibly important reference for me. I think in terms, I'll always watch a murder mystery. Mm. My mother watched murder mysteries when I was really, really little, so mm-hmm. now murder calms me. Not the actual act <laughs> of it, but you, know, but you just put an Agatha Christie on, or yeah. The Fool even, things that are that are quite scary. Mm. Um, that's my, that's sort of my soothing oh, wow. time. Um, and I've definitely 
I've definitely got some to contribute to this conversation, but I mm. have been worried with this this week reading our email chain with you guys just both just <laughs> paragraphs and paragraphs on all of the TV. And I know that you don't sleep, but... I don't, I'm an insomniac, so <laughs> yeah. it's like TV is my best friend. Um, no, I know, I understand yeah. that TV's, uh, I understand that TV's important, it's definitely yeah. important to me, but I do sometimes resent the amount especially netflix i resent the amount of time i feel is being demanded of me it's a big investment it's an investment and i feel that it works in the same way as an addiction in the sense that it's the thing that you're doing to stop you to prevent you having to do something else so yeah so i'm the i'm the the ambivalent one when it comes to tv what about you well yeah i suppose um when I was a kid, uh, my relationship to TV was that I watched whatever my mom watched, mm-hmm. and she was massively into soap operas. And I'm North American, so I watched like Days of Our Lives, you know, General Hospital. <laughs> that means probably nothing to you. Oh, no, we know. Yeah? <laughs> and, um, and we did watch a lot of sitcoms. Um, so I always loved TV. Like, I, so- I, so- I associated with like good times, you know, fun times, great vibes. But now, the way that I consume TV now, like I said, I don't sleep very much. Mm. And uh, I guess I'm not as interested in watching light, light stuff. I like maybe a bit more meaty kind of, actually lots of things with, that are very psychologically oriented. So a lot of the things that we're gonna be discussing interest me very much. And I'm a little bit of a binge watcher. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm pretty hardcore. I can't just watch. I, I really admire and envy people who can kind of pace themselves and they just watch one episode a week and they kind of prolong their enjoyment. I can't, I, I don't comprehend that. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to just sit down and watch like 10 episodes in one go. But I think that's, yeah. most, people's, that's most people's way. That's yeah. people's natural inclination. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time that the media has really given us that option that option and they're really i just feel like they're giving us our terrible our terrible weakness oh definitely definitely oh it's totally enabling me like 100 percent um but yeah i suppose the best thing i've ever watched on tv that left the biggest impact on me is actually something called dark shadows which we're not going to be discussing but it's a vampire uh tv show it's a kind of revival in the early 90s uh, about a guy called Barnabas Collins and he, he he's a vampire and he comes back after 200 years and unfortunately it, it got cancelled after I think only like 10 episodes or something because even though it was doing very well it was very it was like sensational I remember it when I was like I must have been around 12 years old but it got cancelled because um, of the Gulf, the first Gulf War started, and it was the first time war was being televised, so it killed the ratings, oh and no God. one was tuning in to Dark Shadows. I got cancelled because of the war. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's why I'm anti-war. <laughs> Another casualty of war. <laughs> anyway, what about you, Adam? Yeah, so um, I'm someone who. I guess I, I, I've gotten involved in fandoms for certain TV shows mm. and of certain shows that I love and that really sort of in, inform, almost inform who I am or how I see myself. So I've oh, lifelong cool. fan of stuff like Doctor Who, yeah. um, classic series and, and new series to this day. Um, a lot of my reference points, I think, are actually from the 90s when I think back about shows that I really, really loved. So um, Northern Exposure was one of the first shows that I became Canadian. obsessed with. Um, um, no. It's Alaska. It's in Alaska. <gasps> 
filmed, filmed I don't know why I thought that was Canadian. Alaska, yeah. of course. I never watched that, but I always thought it was Canadian. So, okay. so that's probably my favourite show of all time. But um, The <laughs> X-Files was another show that I was and I'm obsessed with. And, um, and Millennium, which was the, the sister show to The X-Files, which is actually the series that, that led to my interest in criminal psychology, that led to me going and studying psychology. Really? So, so um, there is so much TV now. There's so much stuff that I would like to watch that I don't get time to watch. Um, and, and I think so, uh, you're right about the um, Netflix and Amazon Prime and how they encourage us to uh, binge watch, I think. In fact, I saw uh, Frank Spotnitz, who, who worked on The X-Files and um, uh, also worked on Man in the High Castle and so yeah. on. And when he went to, to work with Amazon Prime on Man in the High Castle, he said one of the only notes he got on his early scripts was, you need to put as much action into the last 10 minutes of each episode because we want as soon as someone's finished watching the episode, we want them to go watch the next episode. Oh. So they will actually write scripts uh, in, in such a way that it encourages binge watching. So I think you're right. It's oh, yeah. Well, especially with Amazon, because the more binge watching you're doing, the less you are forming unions and organising against them <laughs> to make sure that they pay their taxes and yeah. their workers fairly. Yeah. The more TV we're all watching, the less politicised we are. Oh my, I like this conspiracy theory. I think that's absolutely true. Um, <laughs> Although that's the thing about te- how much TV is seeped in, because as soon as you said yeah. conspiracy theory, I thought of that still from um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, 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 the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we love that wall. <laughs> um, so, you're, so you're also a, a murder fan or a, cr- a crime fan? Um, yes, mm. yes. Um, I, I do like a lot of those sort of shows that are, and, and I guess it's the psychological thriller, I guess, really, mm. Um, mm. the crime element of. Of that, so Millennium's a good example of that. But there are other shows I think we'll, we'll talk about that are I would classify more as sort of psychological thrillers that I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I prefer serious film. I mean, there there are um, sitcoms that I that I love and so on. But I am drawn to things that are going to make me think and they're going to stimulate me. And I have a a low threshold to something that doesn't grab my attention now because there's so much out there. There's so much that I want to watch. If I've watched an episode or something and it hasn't grabbed me or piqued my interest, sure. mm-hmm. then I just move on. I'm the same. Good. And I found it interesting that you also brought up your mother. I think I that's an interesting thing, mothers and TV, because I guess mothers kind of own that space. Yeah, exactly. A little bit. I think so, yeah. yeah. should do something about that. I know. <laughs> it's very Freudian. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you on, Adam, because what we want to do in the long term is kind of, in a sense, yes, bring, um, do, do more of a deep dive uh, in a kind of dedicated series on mental illness in, in TV. Mm-hmm. Even kind of an ongoing thing we were thinking to keep yeah. so, so that we can keep doing rather than limit to six episodes. So whatever comes out, exactly. I'll eventually watch it and then we'll, yeah. be, able to, we'll be able to make something. And Sarah came up with the best name for the series Box Sets on the Couch. <laughs> I feel like Fraser Crane would really approve of that. So. I'm, I'm really happy about it. Yeah, I love it. I actually meant it. I yeah. came up with it, and then I thought, no, that's stupid. So I said, hey, here's a funny joke that we'd never call it. Box sets on the couch. And, and I, loved it it. Great. I loved <laughs> it. <laughs> so I, I, at this point, yeah, we can just start off with the, some of the categories that we thought would be relevant mm-hmm. to the film choices that we came up with. Um, and would you like to start, Adam, actually, uh, and maybe talk a little bit about, uh, I, was it anxiety and mood disorders that you had spotted? Sure. Although before we do, yeah. perhaps we should talk about the, I mean, there's something about oh, yes. what we've been doing here that's 
may that's given me pause yeah a little bit which i'm not sure of is is the right reaction at all but we actually had this moment just before we started recording where we were sorting out these you know our notes and various you you take borderline you take you take psychopathy you take depression and and I, I sometimes do, and I, yeah. I, I love diagnosing people. I have no right to do it at all, but it's one of my favourite activities. And I think it's actually quite a popular thing mm. these days, diagnosing people. Mm. You know, you have a problem with someone in the office, I was just a neurotypical narcissist or, you know. But I do kind of wonder, are these, you know, how sort of fixed and, and mm. how um, useful is the idea of diagnosing people or, or you know, applying, applying one one sort of description to a yeah. range of symptoms basically yeah, it is a good point that. and it is worth t- tackling that a bit mm-hmm. before we start um i suppose I'm, I'm reminded of that uh it's the ethical guideline of the dsm the diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders that psychiatrists use i i think it's section seven uh goldwater rule and it's this thing that uh, is a guideline advising people to, to try and refrain from attaching, uh, a, a, you know, established diagnoses onto public figures mm-hmm. based on little things that we know about them. So the classic one is, you know, people say that people speculate that Donald Trump is a narcissist, mm-hmm. but the Goldwater rule would say, uh, don't be too qu- too quick to judge. He hasn't been, in, you know, you haven't seen him in a professional capacity. He's not your patient. You're not a psychiatrist. You don't know that much about him. You just know what you've seen in the public domain. Um, so it's kind of like just an advisory thing, yeah? I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I mean, I also, I don't know, I, yeah. I don't know if either of you know this, but when you have a patient who yeah. has, who you believe is suffering from a personality disorder, are you, do you tell them that you're supposed to? Ah. Does it help them? Does it make them angry? <laughs> Does it make them feel hopeful or hopeless? It depends on the type of practitioner a person is. Mm. So I think if they are very wedded to the psychiatric model, they probably want to devise a treatment plan for the person. And they probably would just say, based on some of the things you've told me, based on some patterns of behavior, I, I think you might be, let's say, borderline. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come up with a treatment plan for you. So they, I think they do. If I think if it's an analyst, like a psychoanalyst, they're not that interested really mm-hmm. in attaching labels. It's it's a different way of working with um, someone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How do you feel, Adam, about like is it tempting to attach label? You know, how it's you... certainly tempting, and I think it's yeah. quite a natural thing yeah. to do. We categorize things to to understand the world around us and to understand other people. Um, but yeah, I think it, it can be limiting, and yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I wonder if it, it necessarily leads to an understanding on an individual level if you just put them in a particular box and, yeah. and, and go from there. Yeah. But when it comes to TV, I suppose those are archetypes. Yes. So yes. We can exactly. That. So that's why we're going to be doing that for the rest of yeah. the year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was intrigued when you said that you detected anxiety. Uh, as a kind of fun- big function of the narrative in what was it? Uh, is it Homeland? Um, no, no. So uh, the Walking Dead. The Walking Dead. Yes. Mm. Examples, yeah, and and specifically um, yeah. PTSD. So um, and so, so the Walking Dead is um, so it's a series that airs on AMC in the states, uh, Fox uh, here yeah. in the UK. Um, it's been running now for 
nine seasons, I think, since, since 2010. It's based on a um, comic book series that started several years before that. And it's a post-apocalyptic, uh, post-zombie apocalyptic uh, series. So it's around a, it's about a band of survivors doing what they have to 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 survive in this world uh, mm-hmm. where um, they have lost, the, everyone in the series has lost loved ones and they continue yeah. to lose loved ones th- throughout. And it's kind of a, like a collective um, PTSD scenario where yeah. everybody has, has this. And it's, I don't know whether it fits with the sort of anxious age that we seem to be going through and especially the sort of post 9-11 and post Gulf War and all the, these these kind of elements but uh, it can be a very tense watching experience so, so they really ramp up the tension sometimes and and I was interested when I when I looked into this that that actually it's been used um, to treat um, soldiers with PTSD really? it's actually been used in a classroom setting to have them watch it in a controlled setting and, and experience the sort of tension of, of watching it and then understand it's okay to experience these feelings that you have yeah. without necessarily acting upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's um, it, it's very much about uh, the sort of loss of humanity of having gone through such a terrible event as this and, and what are people prepared to do to survive and how do they cling on to what's left of their humanity and, and they're always in this state of hypervigilance because there's always danger around, you never know where the next attack's going to come from, either from the zombies or from other humans who are just oh. trying to survive and most of the the, uh, the baddies in it are actually other humans, other factions of humans that are, that are out for their own design. That's interesting, so there's two sources of anxiety, it's, mm. the, it's the actual undead but yeah. also civilization yes. in a very tense place yes, okay yes, yes, yes wow that's make that makes me really, really want to watch it actually yeah i'm quite intrigued as well yeah i mean the whole zombie thing is interesting anyway mm. because it's like that for me is very psychoanalytic anyway the zombie is this kind of uh the death drive and the, the, this force of destruction mm. and so does it does it uh, explode a lot of those quite iconic zombie tropes as well, or is it also quite innovative in re- reimagining the zombie? It's it's um, it reuses a lot of the tropes. Yeah. It tries to come up with new situations just to just mm. to maintain interest. I think so. Mm-hmm. Having having been run, running for for nine years, and and they want to keep it running for another ten years or something. They, oh, they have a long term vision for the series. Wow. Um, and. Um, yeah, so they come up with novel. I guess most of the novelty comes from um, the the human uh, enemies that that surface, and um, you get some variety there. I won't say too much. If you're going to go and watch it, then I wouldn't want it to spoil too yeah. much. But, but there's um, there's quite a lot of variety in what goes on there, and and I guess one of the one of the things that makes it a particularly tense viewing experience is that the main cast has had a lot of changes, so no one is immune oh. to being. Uh, written out in quite brutal fashion uh, any time so no one is safe sure but that in a sense is that that provokes for me that feeling of anxiety Mm. that you're never safe you know there's always this kind of foreboding fear that lurks in and kind of lingers um, and might pass but it feels you know in in the moment of panic it can Mm. be it really strikes yeah Yeah. into uh, into the psyche and what and I was curious that you said PTSD is being mm. quite a big feature in yes, Walking Dead. Um, and um, so, and I think collectively, like I say, because everyone there has, has, has been through horrible loss and, and there mm. are various uh, scenes and sequences where people are revisiting uh, um, that, that loss. 
there's one character in particular by the name of Morgan, played by Lenny James, a British yeah. actor, um, who I think very um, explicitly um, is shown to have a lot of the sort of classic hallmark um, characteristics of PTSD, having lost his entire family in, in brutal fashion yeah. to a zombie attack. Um, and it was him, I think, had been involved in, in some of the um, the work that had been done to, to uh, or, was, or had a, a good level of awareness in the work mm. that had been done with soldiers to, to, to treat them by using sure. content. I'm really intrigued with by the, I mean, I obviously don't know the story at all, but mm. uh, the fact that you're, you say that sort of 50% of the, ang- of the, the threat stems from other people. Mm. And you, you're, I don't know you're, I don't know if it's whether it's your place in the world with other people, but I find that really interesting because the, the idea that even if you haven't had a particular trauma or been in a war zone, mm. you, still, you still have these, this anxiety. And all of my anxiety is very much a, a silly girl who's never been in a war. <laughs> I'm very always worrying yeah. about other people, other mm. people's, yeah. what other people think of me or other people's uh, anger or that kind of thing. Yes. So it's interesting that it took that sort of very... That even if we took all the trauma out of the world, we might not necessarily rid ourselves of anxiety absolutely and, and, a, and a lot of it, uh, the um a lot of it comes from mistrust so someone new comes across your camp and how do you know you can trust them mm-hmm. um and, and mm. yeah a lot of tension comes from that and it's quite a sort of feudal so that society's broken down into a very feudal state with yeah. sort of small small groups and so on so yeah a lot of that is sort of a lack of trust in fellow humans who've been pushed to the limit yeah oh like that like it makes it. me want to watch it mm. <laughs> and actually this is probably a good time to also mention that over on evolution of Ho- horror yes the podcast they're doing an entire series on zombies they're recording one right now they're in reco- a different room <laughs> in this building yeah exactly <laughs> how weird is that <laughs> yeah uncanny um so moving on from anxiety to uh, mood disorders you mm-hmm. you selected one for that as well yeah, so Homeland yeah. was the one that jumped out at me. So, yeah. um, so Homeland is another long-running series. So mm. it's, I think, in its uh, so it's about to come to an end. It's been running for seven. Seasons. I can't believe that's still. I think I was in school when that started. <laughs> so, I didn't. I yeah, had no it's been idea. Been on for a while. Twenty eleven, I think. Wow. Right? wow. Yeah, that it started. So uh, it's seven seasons. Its eighth season, I think, is due to debut at the end of this year, and it's going to be the final. That's season. the final season. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, a Showtime in the US. It shows on Channel Four over here. Um, so that is about a CIA uh, agent, uh, Carrie Matheson, play, played exceptionally by Claire Danes, oh, yes. um, who is uh, suffers from bipolar, and um, and it's it is very much sort of set in this again, sort of post nine eleven, this fractured America, fractured political um, in, environment. Yeah. And she's this uh, brilliant CIA operative, but who struggles with her uh, her job from the fact that she has uh, bipolar. And um, I think one of the reasons I I like it so much is is that over the the seven seasons of the show, you sort of follow her highs and lows. So so while she has bipolar, she goes through long periods where she's absolutely fine she's mm-hmm. um she has a regime of medication that okay. works for her then something will happen and she'll stop taking that medication and after a period of time things start the symptoms come back yeah yeah so one of the uh one of the things about the show initially was you kind of think well how can someone with this condition hold down a job at the cia that's an incredibly yeah. stressful job and 
and without giving too much away, over the course of the series, she doesn't. Mm. So it becomes okay. very clear that she can't. And she also, she has struggles as a single mother as well. Um, but it's often held up as, as, as being one of the most mature sort of uh, considerations of any mental illness in sort of recent, recent really? TV. And I think it's exceptional. Um, Claire Danes is fantastic. The, the creators and, and writers, um, uh, which is Howard Gordon and Alex Ganser, who actually came from shows like The X-Files, 24, um, they're, they're very experienced showrunners, um, put a lot of care and effort into, yeah. into how they've created that series. So. And what are some of the symptoms that she represents in her character? Yeah, so so there, um, she suddenly suffers uh, manic episodes, and okay. and there is there is this sort of slight uh, sense of um, mental illness as a superpower. So sometimes, so she does her best work when she's in oh, a manic uh, manic yeah. episode, but she is also prone then to making mistakes, and 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 there's an element of delusion as well. So the the uh, first season, the first couple of seasons, um, the continuing storyline is about her suspecting that a um, decorated war hero who's, mm-hmm. who's come back from the Middle East may actually be, have been turned in as a foreign agent. Oh, and yeah. So there's that sort of element of conspiracy and, and mistrust there as well. Oh, and wow. I won't reveal how that plays out, but uh, um, there's a lot of sort of tension around around that and the sort of risks that she takes. So she certainly indulges in some very risky behaviour in yeah. terms of how she approaches him and, and how she how she operates herself as a CIA agent. Yeah. I'm really interested in the mm. idea of mental illness as a superpower. Yeah. Is that something you're interested in as well? Yeah, and sometimes I think it's done very badly. Um, there, there, there was another example that, that I had of a show, um, just to mention briefly, called Monk, which was, um, that was actually about uh, um, OCD, OCD. with OCD, and that was very much he was. Um, it, it had the tagline the, the uh, defective detective. Oh so um, <laughs> oh, no. he, he was. He had. He suffered from OCD. Um, his uh, his wife had been killed in violent fashion, and that had made it worse. But he also had something like three hundred phobias. And it's kind of like whatever phobia fit the story of the week, he had it. Oh no! Um, and it, it became very. It just felt it's like a formulaic. Yeah, very very formulaic. Um, and and very over the top and very much then it was he's a brilliant detective because he's OCD and he has this massive attention to detail Um, it was a very popular series and it and it actually won some awards and the and to be fair to the 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 cast and crew they actually campaigned a lot to raise awareness around OCD but that was kind of the mental illness as a superpower that to me went too far Mm. that's it is interesting because we have I, I feel like we have that all over the kind of arts film Mm. Like the creative industries, right. um, of the idea of uh, people of depression as a as a tool mm. for creativity. I mean, we're big fans of Lars von Trier. Yeah. Um, we and he that he's well known for turning like fits of like not being able to get out of bed, depression into really great screenplays that mm. then become really great films. Mm. And I I find it sometimes just hard to, even personally, just hard to let go of the idea that if you lost your yeah. your mental illness maybe you'd lose your abilities yeah. which can't po- I don't think that can be true I think these people are brilliant in spite of their yeah. yes, yes. of their mental illnesses and, and actually one of the things about Homeland that I liked as, as well is that yes she has brilliant moments um, but she also makes some terrible mistakes mm-hmm. uh, as a consequence of her illness as well mm-hmm. so it's it's quite balanced in that sense. And how does her like the her depressive phases mm. manifest? Like wh- what? How is she represented? in because I often think depression is probably one of the most challenging 
uh, mental states to represent mm-hmm. on yeah, TV to keep you entertained, like not entertained, true. but you know, like keep you interested, engaged in the content. I mean, Lars von Trier is almost. I don't know, singular in the way that he manages to depict that mental state and capture the imagination, capture the attention. Well, he's quite good at the comedy of it. I think um, so. And I think, <laughs> I've found that whenever I've tried to write about depression, I've just, it, I mean, this is the nature of depression. It sounds so stupid and, you know, self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And has anyone ever read Prozac Nation? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I prefer the film, actually, to the book, yeah, I have to say. <laughs> Um, so, so they yeah. do represent um, periods of, of, of a depression, but mm. um, I would say they gloss over them, but, okay. but um, she'll be hospitalised for periods and so on, and then oh. maybe the storyline will pick up some period later, or, or she'll have been hospitalised in between seasons or That's something. So oh. um, so they they make sure to sort of represent them without getting too caught up in them, because okay. if you say it could sort of slow the drama down or not be terribly interesting, interesting. perhaps or entertaining. Yeah. Her ability to recover from those things must be really nice to watch yeah and I, th- I think yeah. she probably is I, would, I hope she's quite an sort of inspirational character because she does yeah she always gets back up and yeah. continues even, wow. even when she's that, which is absolutely the last thing you feel like doing when oh. you're when yeah. you're really ill yeah that can seem so heroic in itself mm-hmm. yep. yeah being able absolutely. to yeah work through that enormous difficulty and challenge yes. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, I like those choices. And I gotta say, I haven't seen either of those. Okay. Well, so actually now that's you know, that's me set for for <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> so would you I like think to... you actually yeah. won't do it in a weekend. <laughs> oh yeah. So, just forty eight hours straight. <laughs> um, can I ask you so you said mood disorders. Mm. Is that th- was the, what is what is the difference between a like a mood disorder and a personality disorder? How does it arise? What does ah. So my understanding is that a mood disorder is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought that it was that it's a chronic mental illness um, that is separate from personality traits. Mm-hmm. It can be a reactive thing. So someone might just have a reactive depression due to ongoing trauma that's currently you know, happening in their lives. Uh, or it could be a chronic condition like Lars von Trier. Mm-hmm. But that's one true disorder. They're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, whereas personality disorder, is it just that it's much more kind of early onset? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that's just much more, I suppose, embedded in the, in the person's character. So it's not a separate illness. Mm-hmm. Or it's just a dysfunctional personality trait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that actually um, there are dysthymic personalities uh, in the DSM as well. So that someone might just be a melancholic character. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that gets, I mean, that in a way, there's an argument to be made against that in terms of pathologizing someone based on maybe just a character trait, if they're functional. Mm-hmm. They're functional, but yeah. Whereas, why why the need to medicalize? I suppose um, because yeah, I I know some people who just have, you know, they're a little bit edgy. They're you know a bit morose. They're miserableists, but they they're functional. You know, they don't need to be hospitalized. Far from it. They're they're productive, but they have a very dark sense of humor, <laughs> and they might just say, yeah, I'm a bit of a me- melancholic character. Um, you know that doesn't fit our in our society our worship of happiness of course mm-hmm. so they might stand out a little bit but 
but I really like those people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to. I don't want them to get treatment and then become happy. Like, I mean, unless that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a cool trait. But is that me then just glorifying something that makes someone unhappy? Yeah. You know, know. like it's such a it's such a kind of nuanced thing, isn't it? It is very nuanced because you do feel like you're, you know, you're. Uh, I use I always use depression as an example, but it's very much that you feel like that's your personality. That's part of your the truth. About yes. you. Yes, exactly. And it's, I don't know, and I've never, I suppose that's just the human struggle, isn't it? What's, yeah. like, what is the, your perception of something and what is the truth? Yeah. In general, and we cannot get into that because it, my head will explode. <laughs> <laughs> but what is a problem and what is, yeah. yeah, what is a problem and what is you having a bad attitude, basically? And also, what is society holding up a standard saying exactly. you should be this, mm-hmm. you know? And then no one measures up to that. Um, yeah, I suppose from there, I I wouldn't mind just kind of moving on from, unless there's anything else you wanted to mention, no, no. Uh, but I'd like to move on from there and talk about psychosis. Oh, okay. Uh, in, because in a way it fits really nicely because what you've presented on so far is uh, anxiety and mood disorders, which I would say, you know, classical psychoanalytic thinking looks at these things as kind of more neurosis. Mm-hmm. Whereas psychosis is a completely different category mm-hmm. for a psychoanalyst. It's someone who, you know, you know, for all intents and purposes, an anxious and depressed or bipolar person, um, you know, is struggling, but they still occupy a shared reality. Mm-hmm. There's no major delusions and hallucinations and 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 interfering uh, in their let's say, normal perception of reality. Whereas a psychotic person, it's much more debilitating in the sense that they feel very separate from uh, the experience of other people. So bipolar is a mood disorder? Yeah. Interesting. It is. Mm. It is. I think a milder form of bipolar is cyclothymic disorder. Yeah, which is just... A little, a little bit less pronounced, mm-hmm. but it's still those kind of like That's ups so and downs. Yeah. I feel like I don't know where I've got it from, but I feel like I've always had a stereotype of bipolar as being a personality disorder, as being a, yeah. um, a, a actually just being a crazy girl thing, you know, sure. about a re- unreasonable, yeah, yeah. unreasonable ex girlfriends. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, bipolar. You know, it's an interesting. Uh, I didn't. I didn't realize that it was a mood disorder. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. I haven't believed those stereotypes, but it's something that somehow seeped in. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. This, yeah. Uh, like a, a, an idea of someone as being a much more intrinsically unreasonable person in the way that you, you get mm. when you meet, you know, someone who's like so badly suffering from, yeah. you know, narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, but I, the one that really jumped out at me for psychosis. And, you know, I mean, just running through the kind of idea of what psychosis is, I've, kind of, I've got here a top-line definition of psychosis, which, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an abnormal condition of the mind um, where the person has difficulties is determining what's real and what's not. And it, you know, the hallmarks of it are, you know, false beliefs, which are delusions, or, and then sometimes seeing or hearing things. Uh, auditory hallucinations are a very popular one. Hearing voices. Um, other symptoms may include um, you know, incoherent speech, sometimes referred to as word salad, behavior that is in, in, inappropriate for the, situ- you know, for the situation. Um, and there, there, there's a marked sort of social withdrawal. Um, people feel uncomfortable around someone exhibiting psychotic symptoms. And, and it just also, you know, bears mentioning that psychosis can appear in 
mood disorders as well, particularly bipolar, um, but also uh, other conditions connected to addiction as well. Um, so people you know, exhibiting hallucinations and stuff, um, altered states of cons consciousness. The, the show that really uh, spoke to me for this category is actually one that I keep on trying to like indoctrinate people to. <laughs> like I'm always trying to push this because I thought it blew my mind. It's only three episodes. Um, it's just one series that aired on the BBC. It's called The Replacement. And um, it follows a woman called Ellen and she's an architect and she's expecting her first child. She's pregnant and her firm decide to bring um, bring in a maternity cover for her and uh, the woman is called Paula the replacement is called Paula it's an it's a really interesting show for me because it sort of plays on the trope of the double someone's coming to replace you yeah and it's just like a first certain amount of time it's a predetermined amount of time so you should feel perfectly uh, you know, reassured that it's, it's not forever, you'll be back mm -hmm. after your maternity leave. And initially, the two characters, Ellen and Paula, get on. But the drama of the show is that Ellen begins to fear that Paula is taking over her professional and personal life. And the everyone involved in this show, it's written and directed by um, Joe Ahern, um, the music is fantastic. It's just got the best cinematography. It's very cinematic. Um, and the only downside of it is that it's too short. There's only three episodes. So that's like one afternoon for me. Um, <laughs> but I was just, I loved watching it because as a viewer, what I like is suspension of disbelief. I like to forget the contrived act of watching. I want to feel immersed in what I'm watching. I want to experience the emotions and fully um, feel what they feel. Um, and it's, it seems a bit, you know, maybe for some people it might feel traumatic. Why would you want to feel psychotic? But I, I don't know. There's something really interesting for me when in the narrative presentation of a show like this, as a viewer, you're no longer sure what's real and what's not. You start to through the suspension of disbelief, uh, feel that the contours, the lines around things are blurred. Now you're not sure whether she is just ex exhibiting psychotic symptoms and it's just delusions. No one's in cahoots against her. Uh, she's not, you know, Paula is not the enemy. Uh, you know, you don't know whether that's true or whether, no, there is a plot. Mm -hmm. There, people are conspiring. Uh, they're holding meetings and they're not inviting you and it's because they've got something against you. And it's so convincing. The way that this show uh, portrays that mental state, for me, it's just, it, it, it's no holds barred. It, it, uh, it creates a very um, d d disturbed environment. And I think that it takes a, a lot of talent to achieve that kind of thing. And for me, it's one of the best I've seen. I mean, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Black Swan, actually, mm -hmm. you know, because that, of course, also presents, uh, I think, primarily the experience of psychosis and this kind of maybe delusional fear that someone's out to get you or someone's trying to replace you, take your take over your life, actually invade you. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the fabric of the subject's reality is torn apart. Um, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, can I ask mm. a controversial question? Yeah. 
Do <laughs> Please you do. feel yeah. that fear of being replaced yeah. is more of a female experience? Oh, wow. That's a really interesting question. It's a leading question. It's a leading question. <laughs> ah. Personally, I think that in this show, mm-hmm. it is 100% couched in the female experience yeah. because she's pregnant and she, because she's going on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how to answer that. What do you think? I think I'm, pro- I'm projecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do. I, I did find it interesting. And also the fact that you mentioned Black Swan. Obviously, there are yeah. stories of replacement, the double. Yeah. And I'm not sure. There's there Because there's a psychosis mm. of feeling that other people have been replaced without your... Ah, uh, yes. Of course. That's, that's, that's the less... Capgras syndrome. Yes. That your significant other has been replaced by an identical looking imposter. Mm. I love that. It's great. <laughs> I mean, not the sufferer, but a really interesting sci fi territory. But I do yeah. want, you know, I, just, I suppose the fact that it is that, you know, a lot of women do go on maternity leave and are yeah. replaced in their jobs. Yeah. A lot of women are re- maybe replaced in their marriages or relationships sure. you know there's a, a lot of uh, mm. uh you know if a lot of professions you're replaced by some you know ne- by someone younger or you're not as you know, just as a, you know i feel like women there is that sort of societal problem of women becoming less valuable as they get older mm-hmm. and potentially being less important than yeah. their, than you know what what they would see as themselves t- 20 years ago 10 years ago i mean that's depressing yeah. as hell but yeah and also this kind of in a sense the sh- a show like this is in a way subverting and uh tackling certain patriarchal things about uh how women are defined mm-hmm. and it's like defined so narrowly and then the patriarchal thing of pitting women against each other yeah. so that they feel in competition and they're rivals mm-hmm. you know so yeah absolutely i think it's playing on those fears mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely yeah um, the, my other choice uh, was I, I wanted to look at uh, narcissistic personality disorder and the one that I ended up this going with in the end was Walter White's character in Breaking Bad. Um, am I right in thinking neither of you have watched it? No, you have watched it, Sarah. I watched the first episode okay. when it first came out Yeah. and um, I, I find... The- I find the trope of the sad hand job really, really upsetting. <laughs> I find it really misogynistic and really upsetting. And it happened in the first episode. Oh no! And I just thought I can't do this. It's too. I just. I. I, I think I was just unprepared for the tone of the episode, and I just of, of the of the series of. And I, you know, I don't and. Uh, it, it just offended me to such a great extent that I just thought I can't do this anymore and I'm sure I would love it I would really like it but I that idea of you know just the failings yeah. of especially the failings of women in long term relationships <laughs> being being condensed to that sad hand job which and it happens a lot and I I don't I just hate it so much well I don't know how to follow that because I can't <laughs> I can't dispute any anything you just said, <laughs> but all I will say. You both, I, I actually regret saying it so much because both of your faces when I said the trope of the sad hand job, you both looked so upset. <laughs> I I, you crushed my dreams. <laughs> I don't remember that. So I've seen the first yeah. season 
And I, perhaps I've just erased it from my memory. I don't Maybe. Yeah. It's just social networking for ago. all of us. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, I, we're better as a society. We are better. We are magic. better. But I don't know. That's a really interesting point. Um, and in a way, I would still encourage you to like, yeah, ki- maybe just work through that mm-hmm. because it is, it is <laughs> without <laughs> to like perpetuate the visuals. But um, because it has a very interesting development from there, that pilot, um, th- there's so much in a way, there's so many little Easter eggs that are like laid out in that pilot that then get followed up. Mm-hmm throughout the series. I think if it hadn't been whatever time it was and the only way to yeah. watch those TV shows was to you know download them illegally and we went yeah. to all this effort to get it. <laughs> and so maybe if it had just been on Netflix and I could have just you know clicked through, I would have done that. But at the time, mm. it was oh, it was not worth the effort for me. I'm going to watch Twin Peaks instead, which is also the first oh, year I yeah. watched Twin Peaks. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that's probably... A, a, that, I can understand that, uh, yeah, why Twin Peaks went out there. Um, but I mean, it, for me, the character of Walter White, he is... Adam, you haven't seen it. So I've seen the first You've seen, season. Oh, sorry, the, ago, sorry, the first season. Oh, yeah, you haven't followed through. You haven't followed through. This is just a very top-line description. Um, you know, there's so much to say about this character. It's impossible to, like, give you, like, a reductive um, and, and, and satisfying uh, breakdown of who he is. But for those of you, for people listening who have not watched Breaking Bad... It's set in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and tells the story of Walter White, played by Brian Cranston, whom I love. And he initially presents actually more of a depressed type, uh, I would say. Um, He is uh, a struggling high school chemistry teacher. He's diagnosed with lung cancer. And because it's the States, they don't have the NHS. um, (laughs) And so that means for him that seeking out treatment for his illness is going to be extremely costly um, and potentially uh, bankrupting his family. So what he ends up doing is that he teams up with his former high, uh, a former high school student of his called Jesse Pinkman. He's playing by, by Aaron Paul. And he basically turns to a life of crime by producing and selling crystallized methamphetamine. Oh, that's a nice way of saying it, Mary. <laughs> to secure uh, his family's financial future before he dies. And the whole series basically kind of navigates the dangers of the criminal world. And the fact that he develops this persona called Heisenberg. And that's the guy who cooks the crystal meth. Mm-hmm. He's the mastermind. He's the brains behind the operation. Um, and he, he needs Jesse for his kind of like, I suppose, the intel about the mechanism of drug dealing and stuff. But he comes up with this uh, unbelievable recipe to cook crystal meth um, that becomes a real sensation. It's, it's, everyone loves it as a party drug. They make a killing. Um, but without going into the, too much, it's a very intricate plot. There's a lot of different characters. I don't want to really focus on that. I'm more interested, just for the purposes of our discussion, to talk about, initially it's presented, this kind of entering into a criminal life, it's presented as a selfless thing to do. He's helping his family. Um, but then there's like a switch where he's, we, we start to see him become very seduced by the lifestyle he's leading and extremely, I guess, motivated and energized and animated by this persona he's created called Heisenberg. And then that's when we re- we're watching it and suddenly it dawns on you like, ah, 
no, he, this is not this is not helping other people. He's helping himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and he th- this is all for him. This is for his ego. Yeah. And I say that with a lot of affection for this character actually. Um, it's really rare that I have a lot of empathy with characters who present with narcissism. Um, but in this case, he's just such a nuanced character. He has so many problems and issues that I can't help but kind of root for him. He's a bit of an anti-hero for me. But it's the fact that there's so many things going wrong for him and he could just stop. Like he's rich enough at one point without giving too much away. <laughs> he is, you know, he does kind of arrive at a place where objectively he's, re- he's he, you know, he's more than met his goal. He could stop and he would not put anyone in danger. His family would be safe. He, you know, he could just uh, lead a decent life mm-hmm. or at least, you know, get treatment and try and get better, etc. But no one ever does that. No one ever does that. <laughs> it's never enough. Mm-hmm. His ego becomes so uh, massive because of who he has become. Heisenberg is such a legend now that he's just chasing this dragon. And it, it, it's so fascinating to watch that. what chasing the dragon means? What does it mean? I don't know. What does it mean? <laughs> I'm, sure, well, I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought... I thought, it wasn't it like heroin addicts, yeah, you say, yeah. right? Drug. Exactly. And that's why the drug dimension of the show works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, because then we, we start to see him, in a way, mutate from a very meek guy mm-hmm. to uh, suddenly just having a massive sense of entitlement. Um, he's, he really exploits other people for his own gain. I mean, there's nothing he won't do. Um, he starts to just exhibit... Uh, an unwillingness to empathize with feelings and the wishes of other people. So it's that switch that's interesting. He, he's motivated initially, he presents as, I care so much for my family, I'm doing everything for them, to being completely divorced from them in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this uh, persona that's so grandiose, and he really, this is the thing for me, this show, how it is a really interesting depiction of narcissism this fixation on fantasies of power and fantasies of success um, how he's now almost becoming immortal through who he's become Heisenberg Heisenberg is epic Heisenberg is a is an icon now in the drug world and the thing is it never really slips into a parody because the writing is so brilliant and the writing is so subtle that it never descends into something too stereotypical or boring or predictable we still we still root for him mm-hmm. and that's a huge achievement yep. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that's that's that for me mm. yeah um i feel like i have a a, a crossover narcissist and borderline yes character. yeah um american crime story mm. the whatever it's called uh, the Man Who Would Be Vogue. It's a terrible title. <laughs> I hated that title. Um, but I was really interested because I think when we were doing um, actually both Narcissism and Borderline, we had four female characters to look oh, at, yeah. if you think about it. That's true. And um, I think Narcissism's genuinely more common in men. Mm-hmm. It's that statistically. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just that we interpret it differently. Yeah. Um, so it's much more noticeable when a woman's exhibiting those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so, like, feminist today. I need to calm down. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, and... Uh, 
And yeah. uh, then borderline, which is traditionally well stereotypically thought of as a, a female, a very female illness. Yeah. And I was so interested to know to I was so I wondered a lot what it would look like in a man. Mm. Um, and I think that um, I I read up that it's often identified in um in domestic abusers actually, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the so that's I, I I it actually just suddenly makes me understand that phenomenon so much more. Oh yeah. Of uh, I'm not not making excuses for anyone, but if we, if you read domestic abuse as more of a fear of being left, than yeah. a, than um, than a need than a sort of sadistic need for control. Mm-hmm. If you know in the best in the best situation. Absolutely. Um, but yes, the uh, the um, murderer. Yes. Whose name I've completely forgotten. Yeah. Now, and we don't have uh, our printer. Andrew Cannellan. Ah, thank you. Yeah, very good. Who <laughs> um, we are basically with throughout the whole six episodes yeah. or whatever. I found I know that he was diagnosed as being a psychopath and a narcissist when he was caught, mm. but I felt that there was that so much. I mean, obviously it's a fictionalized, yeah. mm. you know, it's a fictionalized uh, version, and we don't know how similar he is to the real Andrew Cannellan. But in this this character, I think most of what motivates him and most of the sort of situations he gets into and the things he does seem to be a need to be something to somebody or associated in some way there's mm. a, each episode is about a different person with which he tries to associate himself whether that's a, a fiance that he wants to be that he yeah. that he wants to be with who doesn't want to be with him or a fashion designer who's sort of who he wants to be associated with that doesn't know him or uh, or a, a client that he wants to show off for as an escort yeah. all of his all of his sort of main preoccupations are about being in some way about who he is in relation to other people yeah and i found that i that was what i imagine it would look like in a man mm. that same that same sort of need to be to not really to have a, a personality that is that is changeable depending yeah. on and he does and he lies all the time and he makes up these sort of backstories for himself and it's all dependent on his who he is is very much dependent on who's around oh yeah um, but then it's also a narcissism thing because I feel like he needs to show off and, yeah. and he needs to be and everyone is actually also there just to admire him he craves that audience yes. doesn't he so yeah I think yeah. he does you know the gift buying and the oh, yeah. you know and the, the seducing and the sex work and all of that stuff yeah. is to be admired sure and then he's also sadistic and you have that horrible those horrible scenes oh, of yeah. him sort of preying on closeted gay men and, and then torturing them and then brutal and kills and kills or just uh, sort of sadistic games oh yes not, and no one can say anything yeah because they're all just too ashamed did either did you guys watch it yes. I watched a few episodes of that and I was very yeah so what did you think yeah excellent and, and again some just some superb uh, performances as well mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah yeah, everyone's really good in it. Everyone's I, really good in it. Also, I think having done that backstory about murder mysteries, mm. the first time I knew of a real life murder was the murder of Gianna Versace, ah. and it was the first time I saw fashion <gasps> as well. Oh my god! Ever because that was sort of all over the TV, and then a few, a couple of months later, or maybe not that long later, they did a tribute fashion show on the Spanish Steps. And all the models are crying. Oh my god! They're 
ticks a lot of boxes for you. I know. <laughs> and we're just doing a series on fashion films. And we we're, are. Yeah, we're doing. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and Sarah, you run Spilt Milk. I have an Instagram. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is pictures of women crying, not real women, but or like cultural moments or film moments of women crying. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not sure why yet, but I have some vague theories about the sort of prevalence of that imagery and it's so prevalent that I've been running that account for four or five years mm. and I've not run out of imagery <laughs> but I've posted those pictures of Naomi Campbell oh, yes. crying and I'm crying at his funeral as well oh my gosh so yeah I think that was a very big moment yeah in the death of Gianni Versace oh my gosh obviously so more so for the friends and family of Gianni Versace but yeah <laughs> yeah oh that's really interesting mm. So I would recommend that one. For yeah. The, for the ticks, the murder boxes, the investigation boxes, and then also the narcissism borderline boxes. Great. Fantastic. Actually, this feels like a good moment to talk about these representations in, in TV and maybe what responsibility creators yeah. have. Yeah, because you guys were kind of having a bit of a discussion about yeah. that. Yeah. Absolutely. Do yeah. it now for us. <laughs> Do it now. <laughs> We will now perform (laughs) our disagreement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... Shall I start? Yeah, Um, please do. Yes, so so I do um, see that creators have a responsibility to to get things right. Yeah. Um, And obviously, uh, all drama is heightened reality. It's not real life. Um, But I think the, the... art um that i that i admire the most is the stuff that feels most authentic has the most sort of humanity to it as well um and i think there is still a lot of misunderstanding misapprehension about mental illness and i think Mm -hmm. because tv is so invasive uh, people can just happen across tv shows it comes straight into your your home with cinema you've gone out to the cinema probably you have some idea of what you're going to see but with tv you can just sort of happen across stuff and uh and so i think there's a particular responsibility upon creators to, to, to get it right personally I, 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 I think and um, mm-hmm. I um, and that, that if I can can I cite a quote that I had here yes so please from, do um, love a quote yeah. we get to do quotes but I when, know. when I envisage this podcast happening I imagined us as always just doing these quotes <laughs> and citing things and we just never do that so, so this came from and I happened across this this is the yeah. link to on, on my blog just to plug the blog again um, yeah and um I almost forgot it was there. So it's a, a paper that the Time to Change uh, um, uh, campaign um, had put together in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. that was looking at representations of mental illness on television and comparing how it had, how it had improved over the uh, preceding sort of four or five years. Mm. And there was a, a, a quote here around stigma around mental health from yeah. um, writer Peter Moffat. So he created uh, Silk, the BBC One series from a few years ago, amongst other things. And he said, uh, so he said, drama can make a huge difference in the struggle to get people thinking about mental health properly and without prejudice. Uh, It doesn't need to be polemical or campaigning, it only needs to be truthful. Homeland has set the standard for complex and honest writing about mental health and we all need to follow its lead. Uh, in a television era when too many documentaries are essentially freak shows, mm-hmm. written, shot and edited to ask an audience to laugh at people with mental health issues, writers of television drama have a special responsibility to work against stereotyping and to create characters who are complex and engaging. And, wow, that's a great yeah, quote. And that's and I buy into that, I think. Yeah. Mary, how could you disagree with me? I know. I'm, I mean, you set it up so perfectly that anything I say now, I'm going to be like a monster. You know? so, and 
whatever you guys say, neither of you are going to be the person that said something. Yeah, of course. Jokes, yeah. So <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. I think that is true. And I think that um, ultimately, of course, you know, particularly when something is not that well written, when, it, when, when a symptom is being represented or more, you know, uh, broadly a disorder, mm. There's always a risk that something can be uh, parodied, that it can be, you know, to, to borrow this terminology, made into a freak show. So I can understand, I can absolutely understand the, the, the absolute necessity for sensitivity and getting people on board who know what they're talking about and who create conditions for more comprehensive representation of mental illness, where it's not just some, you know, sudden thing. There's a context. Um, uh, for instance, people have criticized fatal attraction yeah. as a really, yeah. you know, problematic representation of borderline. Or just anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anything. Literally anything. Women, yeah. marriage, men, like professionalism, anything. Pets. Pets, yeah. Children. No, the child is all right. Yeah, the yeah. child is pretty good, actually. Yeah. Um, roller coaster rides, roller I would say. Rides. Bad, rep- yeah. yeah, problematic representation of that. <laughs> But yeah, filmmaking, filmmaking, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. I think Mm -hmm. it's true. But on the other hand, on the other Mm -hmm. hand, I would say that, I don't know. I just, I'm one of those people. I, maybe, maybe it's my own thing of, I elevate artists at such a, on such a pedestal that I think, you know, we should just let them do whatever they want. You know, we should, they should just have free reign and have absolutely no boundaries so that they can produce beautiful art. I, I sometimes worry that, um, particularly when it comes to uh, cinema, but also I think TV for sure, I worry that with so many different you know social justice campaigns going on, which I think absolutely have their place, I worry that they may ha- maybe have too much influence over what artists are creating, and then it creates a kind of culture of repression where certain things are omitted, and, and and also because we still live in a society where mental illness is spoken about in hushed terms, mm-hmm. and there's it's always couched in this thing of you still have to be positive, like the outcome always has to still be positive. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're working towards positivity all the time and being better, etc. Mm-hmm. This kind of language of Twitter, and. But when I see a depiction of it, like a great example for me is Bodyguard, okay. when mm-hmm. that character, um, he he seems to suffer from, maybe it's more PTSD, but he seems to have like panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that it's depicted, it's no holds barred. It's hellish. It's nightmarish. It's not like watered down. It's not diluted. It feels authentic. Yes. So I suppose, yeah, you know, that's my concern. I want artists to be hardcore. Yes, <laughs> and and Bodyguard, I guess, is a great example. Isn't it? Yeah, I loved that uh, that series, and I actually particularly loved that it was a male character shown to be so vulnerable, mm. yeah. just, which which perhaps we don't see very often. Me um, too. Um, and and I yeah, I guess I I can't disagree with saying you know talking about about censoring um, um, artists uh, either mm. to, uh, to be honest, but perhaps there's a I don't know perhaps there's a balance to strike. I'm, I don't I'm know. the judge. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I've decided that you're both right. <laughs> Surprisingly, um, it's interesting because I, uh, you know, that I don't wholeheartedly agree with the idea of the even utopian idea of the artist doing whatever they want, mm. um, because I think there is uh, something to be said for creativity within 
within boundaries and yeah. within like constriction aiding creativity to a certain extent mm-hmm. but I also think we don't have I think there is a danger of films by fo- made by focus groups mm-hmm. or films yeah. made I've all, you can always tell when a piece of work is made with a with this with nods towards buzzwords or yeah. what you know nods towards yeah. feminism or nods towards you know whatever it may be yeah all of that kind of thing and I think that we maybe I think that things are often good and helpful and useful by accident yeah. not even by accident but I think we should trust more in the subconscious of artists to create something that's going to work. Yeah. I think I think most a lot of filmmakers they they're not they didn't intend to say the things that they said that we've found so incredibly helpful mm-hmm. in watching films exactly and I think it's, I think TV shows maybe a little bit they take a bit more creating they tend to be created by a room they're yeah. much more high production they go on much longer yeah and they have to be they have they have to be more careful yeah I agree. Um, but I do think that within ourselves we we accidentally say those things to other people and we accidentally express those things correctly so without being necessarily too hung up on you know we have to make this a great representation of this thing I think I mean obviously some people make terrible mistakes and there are awful cringy examples yeah. out there but by and large I think we can trust most we can trust a lot of people to make something good and to make something that says that says something fairly or says something in a compassionate way yeah. and then the other mm. thing is that I think that we also are intelligent enough to take to sift out content for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've often found the greatest helpfulness in really like worrying pieces of of media. Yeah. You know, I think I run a film club that's based on that idea. Of, that's based on that idea yeah. of you know if that you can that if you're enough of a if you're enough of a if you have enough of, of a belief in wanting life to be a certain way and I'll use feminism again as an example you can Mm. tease that out of any film Mm. at all you can find that reading for yourself and I think you can do it with your with mental health as well Mm. I think that I find that the best thing for my depression is watching actually watching quite psychopathic characters or watching women go through incredible amounts of suffering Mm. because I like that sort of the, the giving off of kind of of a sort of resilience and a toughness and, yeah. and a, it's cathartic yeah, I like, yeah I like watching Basic mm. Instinct because I like that she doesn't seem to care about anyone <laughs> and I wish so much that I could care less mm. you know and it comes and it comes it comes off the screen and does come into me for a little while osmosis so yeah I think I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is very blurry around the edges but I think there's no, something happening makes sense. not on a conscious level both mm. when you watch and when you make to film and TV mm. that we we can kind of rely on by and large to mm. push it, get us through sometimes I find some of the most extreme things um, turn out to have an element of truth as well so mm-hmm. so one of the series that I think again we had slight differences on was Killing Eve oh, yes <laughs> and, and, and that was um, a series where uh, so the character of Villanelle um, I, she felt to me like a bit of a construct I didn't feel that she was necessarily that authentic and and I was doing a little bit of reading uh, about it and they were, they were quite careful in terms of how they, they approached it and the advisors and, and looking at the differences between how um, psychopathy presents in men and women for, for example um, and there was a scene and I may forget some of the setup of this but uh, a scene where she uh, shows up to her, her handler where she's wearing the beard and so on oh, she's sort yeah, of dressed at him and yeah. I thought this is kind of ridiculous this is a kind of crazy <laughs> scene but then reading a, an interview with the 
uh, advisor that they had on there, that was based upon a uh, psychopath that had, that was undergoing uh, therapy and had started showing up to, to therapy sessions dressed oh. as a therapist as a way of expressing a connection, not being able to find another oh way of Oh my God, I did not so, know that. So a moment that seemed really strange to me oh, on the screen turned out to be based in truth. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That, wow. that makes me want to go back and watch that episode. So the, so you're saying, that's interesting. So the report was that in that case study, mm. the individual, the subject who was seeking therapy for yep. psychopathy, yep. they believed that by imitating the person that they admired or felt connected to, that, that was like an authentic... It, it was kind of the only way they felt able to express a oh connection to their, to their therapist, uh, being unable to express themselves in, in perhaps ways that someone who didn't have psychopathy might wow. be able to. Did, um, they, did they believe that that was a conscious decision or, a, or an unconscious one? I don't one? know. I'm not sure. It's mm, very scary, the idea of someone it? It seeing to manipulate you in that way. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, like there's, it, it sort of plays, it, it checks out with this uh, idea about how psychopaths, particularly like the way that in true crime series and stuff, mm. like the serial killers are always depicted in front of the mirror. I'm thinking of the house that Jack built, actually, mm. uh, where they, they've got all these different facial expressions pinned to the wall. Mm. And they practice the different faces. Well, that's in the opening, opening few moments of Killing Eve. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. She practices, practices different smiles. She practices different smiles. Yeah. <gasps> oh, um, my gosh. But it's also scary because I've often, I keep re- trying to remind myself to sit like other people or to have the same body language as other people mm. to make mm. life just easier for myself and make people like me more. Um, I always forget to do it, but my my intentions are maybe a bit psychopathic <laughs> to try and control people that way. But I always keep I keep thinking I must do that. I must do that. But I've never remembered to do it. So. <laughs> maybe that's the difference between me and a psychopath. Like, yeah. I forget. <laughs> I think um, that's quite sweet. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I mean it sweetly, but maybe I don't. Maybe it's um, so you so you mm. feel you so looking back on Killing Eve, you feel mm. that it's more of an accurate representation than you initially thought. Yeah, and maybe. maybe Maybe I misjudged it. So, so, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. I, th- I think sometimes it's um, um, when you start mixing comedy with a representation of mental illness. That's when I start to have problems with it. And I think it's a very difficult thing to do and, and do well. But I enjoyed the series. But I just had these slight reservations in, in yeah. the back of, of my mind. But maybe I was wrong. That's maybe. interesting. I always think comedy is mm. the easiest way to do it. Uh, oh, really? to, uh, okay. It's because there. I mean, I only think maybe with only with certain disorders mm. but I feel like there's yeah. an ability to be truthful with comedy that you right. don't have with yeah. drama yeah, that, right. that, t- that turns into melodrama that's so true mm. drama. Mm. actually that's true also in American Psycho mm-hmm. there's a lot of black comedy in that yeah what did you think of Killing Eve did you love I it I loved it I loved it mm. I love the soundtrack yeah um I y- Pretty much anyone can win me over with a good soundtrack. Um, <laughs> um, some of the some of the scenes are so outlandish in that that I, in a way, it made me think: Is this just in her head? You know, like is this how she thinks she's performing these kills? Mm-hmm. Like they're so extravagant. She's got all these people interested in her, following her every move, trying to catch her, um, and that is also interesting in the sense that some psychopaths some serial killers um they, they want that adulation as well they want fame they want to be they want to believe that they've outsmarted people 
Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what did you think? That's interesting. I do think, uh, I think that you are one of the only people I know who looks at something and thinks, oh, but is it real or is it how they view <laughs> I it? Always and that is that's what, what you always say. And I always feel stupid for not having looked at it like that. But I think most of the viewing public generally just takes uh, yeah. an, an, a character's experience at face, face value. And I do think, I, I loved it. I, lo- I watched it two or three times. I told everyone about it. It was, I just thought yeah. it was great. Um, it just fed, you know, it's, you know me by now. It just was everything I, I want in life. Yeah. Uh, and, but I do think there is, and it's, I know, I, it's, it's not that many people that are psychopaths and it's, it's probably not a, a, as big a deal as misrepresenting another, mm. another mental illness, you yeah. know, because you don't need to have quite so much compassion for psychopaths. But I do think that there is this thing that I find very unfair, this representation mm. of psychopaths is never making a mistake. Ah, oh, yes. When it's actually, they're much more likely to make them because they're very impulsive and they don't have any, they don't feel anxiety about yeah. their actions and they don't feel empathy. So... You know, we, there's the that yeah. sort of very common belief that it's psychopaths that cause the financial crisis. Really, you know that yeah. because you have a big culture of people, you know, doing big showy things yeah. impulsively and then pushing the blame onto other people when they go wrong and covering up their mistakes. Mm. But that is that is the real truth of a psychopath. Yeah. That, that just because you don't see the mistakes doesn't mean that they're not constantly there. They're just yeah. very good at shifting attention. And so I think that is maybe the thing. If I resent anything oh, yeah. about Killing Eve, it's that point. idea that she never makes a mistake. She's always, yeah. she does everything so perfectly and so fluidly. And, and you know, and I'm sure that's how that's people true. feel when confronted with one, that <laughs> they, are, they, are the, they, they are imperfect and that this psychopath is, is, you know, has everything and is very charming. And mm. but I think it's important if you are confronted with one, <laughs> to know that to know that about them that they're making mm. as many mistakes as you are yeah but that you're just not seeing it I think that's you put you know probably most of our audience won't have to deal with one but yeah hopefully hopefully we hope it <laughs> um, that's a good I, point yeah I think and I felt that in I mean the house that Jack built as well we talked we talked about was is much more it's so obvious that that's his view of himself yeah and that he still comes off as a loser anyway yeah. and I appreciate that I appreciate that Lars von Trier's you know, representation of because I think that's the truth. Yeah, a bit of a loser actually. Yeah, um, I really want to. I don't know if we've passed it or not, but I really want to hear your Buffy example. Mm. Not least because yeah. you're wearing a Buffy ring. You're wearing the oh ring that God. Angel gives to Buffy. Yeah, well, okay, what's that's yeah. so cool. I didn't, I didn't know that reference because I don't know Buffy. There you go. I, I, I really think you're going to have to. I do think Buffy. so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think you'll really like it. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and I and I picked Buffy because one of the, the uh, I think the most effective representations uh, sometimes of mental illness, or where a, a series that is not primarily focused upon mental illness touches upon it uh, for an episode or or a, a sequence. So. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so it ran from uh, 1997, um, so uh, US series created by Joss Whedon, yeah. and is about a high school um, girl, teenager, who uh, is the chosen one from her generation um, to have special abilities at fighting vampires and, de- oh, yeah. and demons, and and the, all the demons and vampires, they're basically stand-ins for uh, the 
the anxieties of of being a teenager and then being a young young adult. So it's very much what the, the series is about, and it's and it's sort of about female empowerment as well. Really? Very, very much. So it's a great series. I do highly wow. recommend it. Highly recommend it. And Angel, which was the spin-off, which is where oh, the yeah. reference. And that is actually a good yeah. example of a creator accidentally making something because Joss Whedon, as we know, yeah. does not empower women in his life. But oh. he's created that incredible <laughs> series, which yeah. women all over the world feel very empowered wow. by. So, yes. anyway, sorry to interrupt. That's no, it's okay. So there was there was uh, an episode, and it was in the sixth season, so it was fairly late on in the series, and it was at a time when uh, the character of Buffy had gone through a tough time. Specifically, she had died and been resurrected, so which is quite oh. a bad bad day. Um, <laughs> uh, and she was so she finds herself um, in convoluted fashion that I won't get into, uh, being attacked by a demon who injects her with a, um, a hallucinogenic venom oh. um, that makes her think that the entire uh, past of six years of her life till she found, since she found out that she was the slayer um, has been entirely in her head and and so oh the God. the the episode flits between her her actual <laughs> fictional life as, as the vampire slayer and her in a um, in a mental hospital actually being under treatment being told you know this is all a delusion that, that you had and and it actually they, they I think they go back and uh, um, they, they sort of invent the fact that when she first um, encountered vampires and so on, admitted it to her family, they took her to see a, um, yeah. a psychiatrist, and and she was institutionalised for a period of time, and and so it plays with the idea: well, has she been there all along? Was this this really what oh the show is all, all about? It's a very cinematic episode. It could just be a whole film. Great, <laughs> and it's. It's kind of a it's kind of a trope. You actually find a lot of shows that will have an episode that's about this, especially a lot of sci-fi uh, fantasy yeah. shows and so on. Star Trek has done it. I think Star Trek Deep Space Nine had something very similar. Mm. Um, and it's um, it uh, so it's it's particularly touching because her at this point she's lost her mother in the series and her mother's there in the hospital and, and actually mm. her father's there as well and her father had left her mother when her mother was still alive and so on so there's all these sort of emotional hooks to make her want to believe that this this is actually true that she's still got this family unit around her and so on and it's um, obviously not going to throw away six years of the <laughs> mythology of the show to say actually yes you're right she, oh, yeah. she's just suffering from this but it's um, creating it, that tension it does create the tension and and quite interestingly the the way the episode ends without saying too much uh, it, it leaves things fairly uh, uncertain so it doesn't actually categorically say uh, no this was this was just this demon that, that attacked you it leaves the door open to the fact that actually maybe this is what the whole wow. series is, is based on um, and from a from a creator's point of view so just Whedon had a uh, a quote about it that said it was a postmodern look at the concept of a writer writing a show. Wow. So in terms of the whole notion of creativity and so on in itself. But I just thought it was a, it was very well performed. Um, um, it was uh, just a really interesting episode that that allowed people to take a look at um, at, at psychosis yeah. for an hour and. Um, in a way that was quite unexpected if you were following yeah. the show week to week it sort of came out of left field mm. um, but was was very very effective and very affecting and, wow. and when I was thinking about TV shows even though this aired it like 15 years ago it's one of the first things that came to mind so wow. it sort of stuck with me it stuck with yeah. you so the episode's called Normal Again mm. and it's from oh the sixth God. season of Buffy I've forgotten all about so that episode good. but it is so mm. good and I think as well it gives a really good look into what 
it's like to be the friends and family of someone that's mm. suffering. Yes. Because it's just so deeply frustrating for yeah. everyone to 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 have to deal with, and the mm. the fact that they all have this this um they're all sort of given this solution that yes. you know if we just go and we go and find this antidote and we do this then everything will yeah. be okay that so many that no one ever really would have but you know i suppose it's kind of similar to if we could just find the right the right medical yeah then everything every all of this will just be over and everything will be okay yeah it's really heartbreaking it's heartbreaking yeah it's tragic wow that's a really good recommendation yeah you just yeah. have to start from the beginning, i need to though. start yeah exactly <laughs> Seven yeah, seasons, that's like two weekends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Amazon Prime, actually, newly. Oh. Yeah, only a couple of weeks ago they put it on. Because Netflix used to have it, and then they lost it. And then I oh, think no. everyone quit Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> they had to make Stranger Things to get everyone back again. Wow. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion. And I'm really glad that we uh, got together. Thank you so much, Adam, for appearing on our podcast. Thank you again, Fadi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.